This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. And welcome to Nightmares and Dreamscapes. This is a limited series podcast where we're going to be covering Stephen King adaptations. And I'm Joe Lipset. And I'm Terry Menard. And uh, this this seems like a really good place to start because this is A, one of King's favorite novels. And B, he wrote the whole damn teleplay. Like he wrote the entire script for this series. So it seems like a good place to hopefully start on a on a hopeful high note <laughs> yes and folks uh so we're going to spend the first season of this potentially recurring podcast we'll see if there's future king projects that catch our eye but yeah we're gonna spend it talking about apple tv no i always want to call it apple tv plus but that is not right it is apple tv's Lisey's story and there are eight episodes yeah and as you said terry all written by king and all directed by oh Pablo Larraín. There we go. I had to look that up. Okay. I knew Pablo and I was just going to call him by his first name and that seemed inappropriate. So this, the series does tend, I keep calling it a movie when I was was thinking about this, this adaptation, because Hmm. it doesn't feel like, at least with these, these first two episodes, and I'm curious to hear your take on it, Joe, when we get there, it doesn't feel like it's um, an episodic episode of television that we typically see. It's more of like a long form tale that is telling this entire novel just happens to be in eight parts but we also have one director one writer Mm -hmm. one composer one cinematographer so it feels like a singular kind of point of view for the story yeah i'm interested to see if the episode format will get shaken up as we move through the eight episodes because you're right these first two episodes in particular feel very of a kind mm-hmm. but as we were discussing off the air before we started recording the first episode also feels like very meaty like we are being mm. thrown in the deep end water imagery pun you know anticipated <laughs> and planned and the second episode actually feels a little bit more conventional like we might have seen with hbo's the outsider or yeah I'm not going to reference the stand because I don't know that that show did anything well. No, <laughs> it really, <laughs> really did not. <laughs> I enjoyed your dramatic pause, though. <laughs> Although it did use flashbacks in a in a similar fashion oh, to. Gosh. Okay. Okay. Well, we're we're teasing, folks. So Terry, just in case people don't know who we actually are and what our relationship to King is, let's do a quick little summary. So. Who are you to Stephen King and who are you more generally? (laughs) Okay, I'm Terry Menard and uh, I am the editor-in-chief and the owner of Gaily Dreadful. I co-host the Scarred for Life podcast with Mary Beth McAndrews and I am an editor for the We Are Horror magazine. Um, And my relationship to King started when I was, mm, I guess, probably around 10 or 11. And my mom introduced me to Eyes of the Dragon, which is a sort of fantasy novel, somewhat young adult-ish, I would say, compared Mm. to some of his other stuff. And from there on, I was what King refers to as a constant reader. I have loved every single, I I can't say I've loved every single book. I have read (laughs) every single book of his, with the exception of a couple of the more recent ones that have just come out. 
And also I tried to read Tommy Knockers and I could not finish that book. Um, but, <laughs> but other than that, I have been a huge fan of his novels from the beginning. His adaptations have always been kind of hit or miss for me. And one of my kind of worries going into this particular one is that I have not really cared for the stories that he has adapted himself. Right. Um, yes. So I was kind of nervous about that, but we'll definitely get into that. So Joe, what is your relationship to Stephen King and, and who the hell are you? Right. Yes. So I am Joe Lipset. I am the co-host of Horror Queers. I also write for a couple of different other outlets like Bloody Disgusting, like Anatomy of a Scream, like Grimm. And I also have my own site called QueerHorrorMovies.com. And my relationship to King is maybe not as generous as yours is. I like and admire King but I don't always love his ability to execute ideas. So I think he often has great ideas, but his follow through isn't always there for me. But I have read, I'd say probably somewhere between 25 and 50% of his books. Uh, okay. I really have not read any of the new stuff. So I'm kind of like the classic. I've read Carrie, I've read It. I've also tried Tommy Knockers. It didn't quite get there. Uh, maybe one day, maybe we'll, we'll just do a special episode on just that one. No, we won't do that. Okay. But I have uh, been I mean, watching a lot of his more recent adaptations. Cause I really feel like we maybe two years ago went through a kind of King Renaissance and mm -hmm. it felt like we were just getting new King projects all the time. It does feel like that's slowed down now. So I'm interested to see whether they're being more selective or they're picking from more obscure texts. You know, I know you said that this is King's favorite story. I had never even heard of this until they announced that it was being adapted. And then I saw this all-star cast and I thought, okay, so there's got to be something kind of special about this particular property. Yeah. I, you know, I think after his brush with death back in 1999, I think his, some of his output has, has kind of, it, it feels a little bit focused inward in some ways. I would say there's a nugget here of autobiographicalness, particularly with um, the relationship between the idea of this really hugely popular author and the wife that has somewhat, even in, in real life, unfortunately, lived kind of in a shadow, even though Tabitha King is an accomplished novelist in her own right. right. She is constantly put as Stephen King's wife. And I think <sighs> that I remember particularly there was an event that happened a few years ago where Stephen King and Tabitha donated like 1.2 some odd million dollars to some genealogical society. And it was Tabitha's idea. Hmm. And all of the um, articles that were written were Stephen King and yeah. wife donated. Yeah. And so she, uh, you know, he had posted on Twitter saying, you know, that my wife has a name. And then she kind of wrote uh, an open letter, I would say, that basically is like being wife is relationship status. Mm -hmm. It is not an identity. Yes. And so like, and that was like, yeah, fuck yeah, you know, go with that. So I think that that kind of is a lot of what kind of fueled his story in the beginning with this, the brush in with death, where he talked about at one point where he was going up to his office and she was renovating it and it was empty and there was boxes of his manuscripts and everything. And he's like, Ooh, mm. this is what it's going to look like when I die. Wow. And so I think that sort of after that, this sort of like, thought of mortality has sort of been in the back of his mind. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, there's a, definitely a deeply introspective point of view to this particular show. What I find interesting is the idea that this came about, like the genesis of the project came about with him wanting to acknowledge the contributions of his wife, because so much of what we're seeing in the show in these first two episodes is very much a wife who is still living in that shadow, but is almost Mm -hmm. unable herself to escape his reputation, his legacy. Like I'm thinking of the number of times that we actually see Julianne Moore, who is playing the titular character, uh, Lisi, she spends almost all of her time just trapped in this fog of memories, thinking mm-hmm. about her time with her husband, Scott, who was played by Clive Owen. And it, it seems to me that she is a woman who doesn't have her own identity outside of her husband. And he's been dead for two years at this point. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I the way that this, the, the first two episodes in particular have been filmed is, is sort of in a very, hypnotic or Mm -hmm. sort of you mentioned sort of like a fog and that that's what this feels like where it it feels even though the narrative is centered in the present a lot of it has to do with flashbacks and flashbacks within a flashback at one point in episode two where (laughs) where it's definitely kind of setting this overarching like depression i would say because she this Mm. character she's introduced in the pool and she's just sort of staring off into space. And it's an interesting shot of her because it looks like she's not wearing any makeup. And it's, it's, you know, whenever an actress is not wearing makeup in a movie, it's It's supposed to focus on her, her vulnerability. (laughs) (laughs) And so I, I do feel that that is sort of what they're establishing here is so much of her not being able to a deal with, events that happened in the past mm-hmm. and be be able to move on I and mean, she's sort of hoarded all of his manuscripts much to the chagrin of professor dashmeal who mm-hmm. wants to get these manuscripts she's sort of hoarding them and putting them in boxes and she's compartmentalized all of her entire life it seems like in these little type of boxes that she doesn't want to necessarily open and embrace right so I'm interested. So folks, if you haven't watched these first two episodes, we are going to be spoiling them as we go through. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to note that so much of this series is, yes, it's it's Julianne Moore remembering her relationship to her dead husband. But then there's also this entire other side that involves her relationship with her two sisters. So mm-hmm. one is Amanda, played by Joan Allen, who is going through a kind of traumatic, I don't even know if I would call it an episode because we're told that she's had something like this before, but uh, in the first episode, she cuts herself quite badly and nearly burns the house down and then goes into a kind of catatonic state that requires hospitalization by the end of the first episode. And then there's also another sister who is Darla and she's played by Jennifer Jason Lee. And there's a a very- At her most passive aggressive. Oh boy. I didn't (laughs) catch so much of it in that first episode, but the second episode, the gloves are off between Mm. Jennifer Jason Lee's character and Julianne Moore. It's kind of delightful because I love these actresses. Like there's good acting going on, particularly between these two. But it surprised me because I wasn't sure- And I still don't entirely understand how these two stories are going to intersect. So there's clearly the husband, Scott, had a relationship with Amanda, the Joan Allen character, where he brought her out of a previous episode like this. And he seems to have shared some kind of similar trauma to her. 
He also didn't seem to have a very good relationship with Darla, as we learned in the second episode, where I think Darla feels like when Lisi started dating Scott, she basically abandoned her familial responsibilities and she became distant and she put everything she had into her husband and his, you know, skyrocketing popularity as a horror novelist. So I'm interested, but I also still feel like there's a disconnect between the family stories and this other story with a very creepy Dane DeHaan Mm. coming in at the behest of this professor character to collect the unpublished manuscripts. And yeah, I, I'm interested to see how people respond, whether they like one story versus the other, or if they're going to see them as a cohesive whole. Well, and I kind of wonder if this is what initially caught JJ uh, Abrams, who is executive producer and it, his company, Bad Robot, is the one of the production companies behind this. I kind of wonder if that is sort of what attracted his attention to it because it this definitely has a kind of puzzle box feel to it yes. in a way where we're seeing all of these disparate stories where, you know, there's, as you mentioned, there's uh, Dahan and his kind of monotone creepiness that is, mm-hmm. but he also seems to have some kind of magical thing that I want to talk about in a bit. Right. But like, there's that, there's the, the sisters, there's Scott, there's this magical realm, which in the book, if I remember correctly he refers to his booyah moon um so i don't know if that's going to come in at all in in terms of this but there's all of these stories and it feels like we're sort of peeling back layers in a way that a lot of jj abrams's work involves you know he likes to tease things out he likes to keep people in that mystery and this definitely feels like it's in that ballpark at least in the first two episodes yes absolutely and especially in this first episode so folks Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is definitely one of those shows that demands you pay attention i don't know if it's going to pay off in the same way that some of the other abrams puzzle box kind of series will but this feels like i'm on an easter egg hunt trying to recall okay what timeline are we in is this real or is this a dream do i need to pay attention to the fact that sinks keep being left running or that Amanda is discovered in a bathtub or the fact that Lisi is always in the pool at the beginning of each episode. Like there's so many recurring visual motifs, recurring narrative motifs, like characters perform similar kinds of actions. And then that really takes off in the second episode, but the first episode feels like a meal. And then the second episode feels a little bit more like a palate cleanser before we get to the next proper, uh, where's my food metaphor going with this? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) An aperitif before dessert, maybe. A little bit, yeah. (laughs) Not that we're going to have dessert three episodes in in the night episode series, but... Oh gosh, unless it's the outsider, in which case I will be so disappointed (laughs) because I really don't want this to peak and then have to watch, you know, half an episode or half a season more. Uh, yeah, 100%. Because I, I don't know. I'm curious what you think of these first two episodes as a whole, because my thoughts on this are overwhelmingly positive right now, uh, mm-hmm. particularly with the mix of music from Clark, who also did the soundtrack to Daniel Isn't Real. He is an industrial oh, artist. Okay. And this feels so different from the work that he did there, but it is definitely bombastic in spots. And mm-hmm. it definitely has that sort of pulsating vibe that he used to great effect and Daniel isn't real but this is such an interesting connection or or a collection of sight and sound and acting all told together with a very in my mind very interesting and intriguing narrative hook so I'm 
Mm-hmm. I'm hopeful like you that this isn't this doesn't pull an outsider and all of a sudden it's like great few episodes and then just sort of continues to nosedive. <laughs> yeah, the the kind of traditional Stephen King arc to a better or worse effect. And I'll admit that's one of my concerns with this being a show entirely written by him because yeah he's a very capable writer for both books as well as television and film. But I'm trying to think if I've ever actually seen him do anything more than come in for, you know, a kind of quarterback, like last minute Hail Mary thing. Like we saw him write the final new episode of The Stand where he did kind of revisionist take of what would this world look like afterwards. And that wasn't good. Like that was really aggressively bad. Yes. That, that's been kind of, unfortunately, my experience when he has written something. I'm thinking back to, I, I know that this is blasphemy, but I'm not a huge fan of the original Pet Cemetery remake or the Pet Cemetery movie adaptation right. of his of his book. And he wrote that. I know that he was upset with the way that, and I don't blame him, the way that Stanley Kubrick tackled The Shining. And so if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure that he wrote the, the second the adaptation, the miniseries mm-hmm. that wasn't good and i i don't think the stuff that he did on the stand i don't think this the i don't think either adaptation of the stand is really good so there's so much that like every time he gets at it i feel like he he forgets about what makes the book that he is adapting so interesting right and so that has been my fear this entire time but i the first two episodes i mean there's definitely some stephen king isms with some of the language and some of the, the characters but like I don't, I'm not getting that feeling so far. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, this actually feels very confident and very in control. I will say that first episode, you know, I said it's like a, a bit of a meal because it is so stuffed. It honestly overwhelmed me as somebody who didn't really know mm-hmm. what to expect with this world. So it wasn't just trying to keep track of mystery, puzzle box clues, but also just, okay, what is the story that's being told here? What is important? What do I kind of need to take away from this? So in some ways, it's very intriguing. And it, it definitely caught my attention and felt like a very full episode. What I'm worried about is whether or not this will start to become more of like a twist narrative where like, oh, okay, will things pay off in a in a satisfying way? And I'd say that not as somebody who has had that experience negatively with King in the past, but just because I do think that this shows a lot of promise. And I'm hoping that this is King knowing what's going to work well for the medium and trusting a director who can bring that vision to life visually. Because I do think that this show has a really good visual eye as well like it's oh, really it's stunningly gorgeous it's beautiful and i really love when they take brief trips into this uh, magical realm or the the booyah moon or whatever they're going to call it in this in this adaptation i was watching this and it brought to mind sort of the the visual style that w- that i saw in color out of space where it's like hmm. It's so beautiful, it, but it, it's sort of fairy tale like, but there's also yes. kind of hints of darkness in it with the, there's an image that we see a couple times in the, in the first episode and then once towards the end of the second episode where there's this big, tall creature that's sort yes. of lurking in the, the periphery of this forest that is surrounding this beautiful water and there's a red moon and everything's reflecting and everything is so lush and mm-hmm. vibrant and mysterious. But then there's also this sort of undercurrent of 
maliciousness. And I'm curious to see where that narrative is going to go, because I think you said you didn't read, you didn't, you have not read this book. I read it when it first came out, but I remember absolutely nothing about it except <laughs> the main plot of a woman, Jim Dooley, who in the book, I believe his name is Zach and this mystical place. That is literally all I remember about this book. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to see if this connects with you, but everything to do with this mystical other world and the kind of fairy tale aspect, but also the red moon felt very mm. Gerald's game to me. Yeah, absolutely. That, that idea of that sort of eclipse that happens in that, that has connected Gerald's game and in the books connected Dolores Claiborne as well. Yes, I can definitely see like that connection. And I, I do think there are some little little nuggets in here of things that we can kind of see have connections to Stephen King's work. For instance, there's a scene in the first uh, episode where Jim Dooley goes to this library that was funded by the Landons mm -hmm. and he pulls up this kid's book called Charlie the Choo Choo by Beryl Evans. Well, that is an actual book that Stephen King has written oh. under the guise of Beryl Evans. That was a book from the Dark Tower, okay. the Dark Tower 3, The Wastelands, that one of the characters comes across. And it's a story about the Dark Tower. And so he, in real life, wrote a kid's book to be like sort of like a little in-game joke. And so that hmm. that sort of is another connection to the Dark Tower, which, of course, any Stephen King fan knows he like has peppered throughout all, most of his most of his novels. Right. Huh. Okay. I'm glad actually that you brought up that scene in particular, and I think we should have a conversation about Jim Dooley and mm -hmm. Dane DeHaan's performance. I'm actually more interested in the character because uh, folks will famously know that I get frustrated with Stephen King's human antagonists who kind of end up doing the bidding of more supernatural entities. So like, I'm really not a fan of having this second tier villain, but I'm quite intrigued by what Dane DeHaan is doing with this role. And I don't I don't have a good fix on this character. And I think that actually makes him more threatening. And that library scene is a key example of that, where it just, there's so much creeping dread and menace, and he's threatening this poor librarian who is not oh, a character. <laughs> but it's great. I was so nervous for her, because like yes. she, the, the actress, I, I'm not sure who plays her, but she has that old grandma feel, and I'm just, mm -hmm. I immediately, like, my protection feeling goes off, like, don't, don't, don't you hurt that old woman. Yes. And he does something very weird where he raises one arm and says something and then he raises the other and she's, she follows suit mimicking mm -hmm. him. And it makes me wonder if there is something kind of supernatural to his character, or maybe that he can tap into this booyah moon or this magical place that, that obviously has influenced Scott Landon when he was alive. So I'm, I'm wondering if there is some kind of connection there uh, because he does that there. And then when we get to episode two, he goes to visit Scott Landon's old home. And he sort of seems to have some mental control over the man that's living there, where he basically convinces him to just kind of go back inside and gives him this hint about don't get married, which mm -hmm. his distaste for women. I mean, he's, he comes across as an MR, a men's right activist. Oh, for yes, yes, yes. The yes. way he, he, he talks about, wives and women and all of that kind of stuff yeah and in the scenes that we see him in either a hotel room or where he's living and he's filming himself and posing with cutouts of scotland and it's 
it's not just the over the top zealot fanboy persona. It's also, you know, the kind of people that we see where they're like proudly posing with their AK-47 on a college mm. campus. And yeah. it's very triggering in a kind of trolley alt-right. It's scary, particularly in this current moment where we're seeing these kinds of people kind of loudly and proudly declaring themselves. And this Dooley character seems to have no fear of repercussions. Like he is out here thinking he's apparently doing some kind of Lord's work to the point where in that second episode where we do see the professor and sorry, I realized we didn't say so Dash Meal is played by Ron Cephas Jones. Mm-hmm. I noticed that he started saying amen when Dooley was talking in the bar and I couldn't help but wonder if it was just meant to be like, oh, there's a an almost religious fanaticism to the people who really fell under Scott Landon's spell in terms of the books that he was writing. But it maybe also speaks to the power that Dooley does have over people where he he has the ability to control them and make them follow his will. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to see how that's going to to play out because I, I didn't even pick up on that scene, but I, I think you're right. There there seems to be some kind of connection there, particularly with every scene we've seen him. Uh, I mean, the other scenes we've seen him interacting with people, he definitely seems to have some kind of modicum of control over them. So I wouldn't be surprised if that was more of a a subtle reminder that you know, because I I will say. Th- Dashmill's character when he's introduced he feels sort of like a puppet master right where he's like oh, yeah. oh I'm gonna get these books I'm gonna send this evil guy and it seems like I mean, it seems obvious that he would know that this dude is probably going to resort to violence the way right. he's talking to him and then when he, when uh Lisi calls him on his shit and calls him about it on the phone all of a sudden he's very contrite and he realizes that he done fucked up and I, it makes me wonder if he was sort of under the spell of Jim Dooley, Dane DeHaan's character, who he meets in a a Landon fan site. Yeah, nobody. <laughs> so I'm like, there, there seems to be something there that maybe it is Jim Dooley who is in control of the situation, which is an interesting inversion because I was like, oh yeah, this guy is just going to set him loose and he wants to get the books, but there right. might be something else here. Well, and maybe that's a good segue to talk a little bit about the legacy of who Scott Landon is, because the show has a bit of a subversive twist in how it reveals. Like, we currently do not know how Scott Landon died, but the first episode makes you think that he gets shot at a public unveiling where it's like they're they're building some kind of new library, and a crazed fan shows up with a gun and shoots him, and you think, oh, okay, this is where... Lisi apparently kills this individual with a Oh my god, that sequence. I was like, ah! (laughs) I was so shocked. I thought it was a dream sequence. And then I only realized in the second episode where she repeats it, it's like, oh no, she isn't dreaming. She actually killed that dude. So good for her. Yeah. I think it suggests that maybe, I think what's going to happen is that we're going to find out that Scott actually isn't an original storyteller that he has tapped into something that certain people can sense or are drawn to. And it's this kind of other world that we're seeing through some of his dialogue, but also through Amanda's scenarios that she's seeing when she's over at the institution. So we actually get to see this world, this fantasy world 
through Amanda's eyes. And there's like a really fascinating closing shot to the second episode where it's almost like an amphitheater that's populated by all of these individuals. And I just think, oh, I wonder if these are people who are connected to this world. Like this is their avatar. And I wonder if Jim Dooley is one of them. And I wonder if this man who shot Scott Landon is another. I wouldn't be surprised because I, I one of the notes I took when when the man opens fire on on Scott is he says, you stole my mind. Mm-hmm. And I do kind of wonder if if Scott find, found some way to tap into this this magical place. And that is sort of what has been fueling his his uh, work. But maybe everyone else is sort of tapping into it too. And there's sort of a seductive nature to it. And maybe that's why Amanda is, is sort of catatonic in the real world, but she is sitting there staring at, at an image of her, of her life in the second episode where she is with her sisters on this make-believe boat and they're playing pirates. And she's sort of looking back at that life. And it's sort of stuck in this, this realm because there someone next to her mm-hmm. makes some kind of comment where she says, be quiet. I need to think about why I did it, why I killed them, why I killed them all. And that is when the camera pulls out and you see all these people in that amphitheater sort of staring off in various, and some of them have like, one of them has almost like a a shroud over her. And some some of them are a little creepy and some of them have like that kind of definite, I mean, why I killed them all. It's sort of like a, a, a violent vibe to them. And I am wondering if that is also where Jim Dooley is kind of getting his abilities for sure. Yeah, but it's interesting too, right? Because it can't be all bad because I gathered that there's this repeated refrain that Landon's heal quickly and there's a suggestion that Scott disappears into some other space. uh, And I think it's tied to these running sinks in the water. But I think he's disappearing into this other world. And that's part of what is allowing or was allowing him to heal himself. So I'm getting this impression that it's kind of like, I don't know, it's feeling a little bit standish in that regard, where it's like, maybe it depends on who you are and what you bring to this other world. And that's how you use your gifts. But it does seem like there's a select group of people who or either drawing power from it or have access to it, like a slip through the veil phenomenon. And it is giving them something, but it depends on who they are that either you're going to write great books or you're going to <laughs> microwave a bird and leave oh it. Oh my God. <laughs> that sequence, it, it's, well, first of all, that sequence is filmed incredibly well where it's, there's like a focus on a pool and he walks by and there's, you hear the crows and then all of a sudden you hear like a squawk and the mm-hmm. next scene he is microwave something and you hear it pop. Oh, the sound design in the show is oh. also really good. We should note, like, there's there's squishing sound where he's cutting a piece of pizza in his car, and it is oh. the most disgusting sound I think I've ever heard on television. But yes, the the popping of the bird, you immediately oh. know, but they don't ever need to show us. We right. just know. And that's that's the restraint that I that I love about the show is that there's enough here that is is disgusting without having to actually show a bird exploding mm-hmm. in a microwave or whatever the, you know, whatever happened. And just the follow-up scene where Lisey is reaching into her mailbox and her hand comes out bloody. Yeah. And then she ends up pulling out the bird. It's it's so, it's such a, a well-staged sequence of just kind of a gore gag that's not too gory, but leaves enough to the imagination that you're like, oh, that is disgusting. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
No, it's it's good stuff. Uh, you're right. There is a feeling of restraint because really, apart from that, the only other real violence we've seen is the shooting and Lacey hitting that guy with the shovel. And apart from that, it's all tension and just feeling uneasy. Like there's something hypnotic and dreamlike, but there's also this hint that, oh, bad things are lurking just around the corner. Oh, actually, I lied. There is one other scene of blood, and that is Amanda smashing Amanda that smashing tea cup, the... and it is real, real rough to watch. It's real rough, and the sound effects in that also add to it. You, we, you mentioned the sound design. Even when we've cut to, to Lisi on the phone with Amanda, and you can hear sort of like the crackling yeah. uh, sound of that cup that she is smashing between her hands and dragging across, along her arm, it definitely tells you a story without having to really focus on it in such a unsettling way. But, you know, tension is really important in this, but there is, I don't know if it got you, but there is one jump scare in this that actually like made me literally jump. And it's, it's a nightmare sequence where she turns down the hall and the camera is focused on her. And then Mm -hmm. it kind of does that sort of tilt. And then the, the, the guy that shot her husband is there and shoots her. And it like made me, ju- I was not expecting yeah. that to happen. And it was such an effective little jump scare that really cut the tension about, I would say close to halfway through the episode where it's like, this episode has been building this sort of weird anxiety tension throughout it. And it's just mm-hmm. that perfect moment of like, boom, then it goes back to building that tension again. And that's, that's the kind of jump scare I love to see where it just cuts the tension and then allows it to build up again. Yes, absolutely. I I had completely forgotten about that scene. And then the minute that you said, oh, there was one scene that really got me, I thought, oh, right. Yes, I know exactly what you're going to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how much more I have to say, but I'm I'm interested to hear your thoughts about where you think the next episode might go. Yeah, it's hard to say because I, I do think, I think the structure of it lends itself to be a lot of different things. You, I, I, I'm curious to see how long, because in the book, from what I, okay, from what I remember from the book, Jim Dooley or Zach in the book, that's like the major threat through it. And it okay. feels like it's escalating very quickly so far. Right. So I'm curious to see how they're going to sustain that, that tension in the next, uh, like what, six episodes? Yeah. I do think that we're probably going to see a lot more in this next episode, hopefully about this magical realm, hopefully a little bit more about um, Lisi and her sisters growing up because I do think that there is sort of an idea of shared trauma that is definitely coming from both the sisters and also Scott's character. Um, so I'm curious to see how that kind of coalesces a little bit more maybe on this magical pool water that he is vomited mm-hmm. up into Amanda's <laughs> face and then used to like heal the lacerations on his arm. I, I kind of think that might be where we're going to go next, but what do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually glad that you brought up the kind of healing properties of this because the blood bool mm. concept that's introduced in the second episode took me by surprise, particularly that scene where Scott begins punching the laundromat window and then he aggressively cuts himself. And you're right, there is definitely something about trauma and how it plays out across generational and familial lines, because we're seeing it along her story, obviously, mm-hmm. but also his. And I'm I'm deeply fascinated by the relationship that he had with Amanda. 
I don't feel like we've gotten a ton from Joan Allen because she has been in either her manic state or her <laughs> comatose state. Most of it, yeah. So I'm I'm intrigued by what the relationship is like, particularly between the sisters. Like we're getting hints of it in the flashbacks to the wedding day. Mm-hmm. And particularly Amanda saying, you know, oh, I had these great conversations with Scott. Also, you need to protect him. You're the person who has to keep him in this world. So I'm hoping that we'll get a lot more from the early parts of the marriage between Lisi and Scott. And apart from that, yeah, I I do kind of want to put Jim Dooley on ice for a little bit just so that we can let the character in these stories breathe because he is coming in really hot. And I'm I'm kind of worried that it's like, what is he going to do? Kill one of the sisters next episode? Like, it's only episode three. Yeah, I, I I do I do worry a little bit for Amanda because there is that comment police officer says at the very end of it, like, well, where is your other sister? Oh, she's in mm-hmm. uh, Greenlaw. And he's like, oh, okay, well, then she's safe. I'm like, mm, is she? I, is she? <laughs> it, it feels like she's been sitting on that bench and no one has checked on her for hours. <laughs> Yeah, so so that's kind of where I'm at. I'm I guess I have more hope than speculation, but uh yeah, a little bit more with the sisters and maybe just a touch less of Jim Dooley, even though I really do it's a side of Dane DeHaan that I haven't seen before. And normally I find him quite boring. So I'm excited that he's playing monotone creepiness. Oh boy, that monotone. <laughs> Ooh, it is a thing. Okay, I before we do uh, wrap this up, I do have to say that one of the things that I took notes on in this, particularly the first episode, is I don't know why, but every time Clive Owen speaks, it sounds like he is it's channeling different... Nick Cage. Oh, okay. It, it sounds mm. like Nick Cage. And so there's that, and I'm like, why does I, I literally wrote a note? Why does he sound like Nick Cage? And <laughs> it might be because I haven't I haven't seen a movie that Clive Owen has been in for a while, but. Right. For some reason, I'm like, it, it sounds like Nick Cage. And then I also noticed that Julian Moore has done a lot of mouth acting in this yes. first episode. And that's something that I, I do think that she's known for. I was thinking immediately back to Magnolia mm-hmm. with like her sort of open mouth, not quite crying, but trying to hold things together. But she definitely has done a lot of mouth acting in this, in this, in this episode. Yes. Noted thespian Julianne Moore is giving us a lot of mouth. You are not <laughs> wrong with that. I felt like with Clive Owen, I'm just getting different permutations of accent from him. Like when he is telling her about Blood Bull, he sounds childlike and kind of dreamy. And then the next morning when she wakes up and he's just casually making her breakfast and he's almost totally healed, he sounds back to normal. And I'm using air quotes for folks who can't see. The normal is a British person doing an American accent. (laughs) Which is not to say it's bad. It's just one of those things where I hope it's meant to be inconsistent as part of the character and not just because he's struggling with the linguistics. And hopefully we'll learn more about that next week. Right. Yes. So Terry, if people have ideas and speculations and they want to talk to you about Julianne Moore's mouth acting, (laughs) how would they reach you? Uh, I am well I'm not on Twitter as much as I as I used to be but I am still pretty prolific on Twitter at Gailey Dreadful and what about you Joe I am at B stole my remote and that's the letter B 
And just a shout out to the Anatomy of a Screen Pod Squad Network for giving us the opportunity to do this limited series. Uh, everybody, make sure that you rate, review, and subscribe and give the other limited series a chance. I know that there's a lot of great content on the network, mostly because I you know, co-run the network. So <laughs> well, as someone that's not attached to it, you really should be subscribing and listening to it because there is a lot of diverse content coming out of here. And I, I will say that you're going to hear different episodes from different different groups and different people. And it's 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 an interest I, I really like what, what you guys are doing with with this because it does give one space where you can just sort of get a wide variety of content. So yes, please do rate and subscribe. Oh, thank you, Terry. Yeah. So that is it for this first uh, inaugural episode of Nightmares and Dreamscapes. So uh, we will be back to talk about episode three next week. And I guess until then, we'll see you under the water. We'll, Don't we'll choke. Workshop that. <laughs> <laughs>